Welcome to the next Breakfast with Jesus talk. It's uh, Tony Goldsby-Smith here. For those who haven't listened before, Breakfast with Jesus is uh, one of the, is a channel for the Gospel Conversations Forum. And we've been going through the book of Jeremiah. And Breakfast with Jesus is based upon uh, the conversations that Anne and I have together in the morning, um, often as we read the Bible together. And it's a way of sharing this uh, with our friends. We've been going through the book of Jeremiah. I want to talk um, on this one about an infamous verse in Jeremiah. Uh, Jeremiah 17 verse 9, which is, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick who can understand it. This verse has regularly been used and certainly I as a young evangelical did this, regularly used as a proof text for original sin. It's seen as the Old Testament equivalent of Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And um, the uh, I want to challenge this reading. I think it's actually wrong. Um, but my real purpose in this particular talk is to look more broadly at the issue of how should we read scripture and in particular how how to read the Old Testament in Jeremiah. Um, I think the, we've got a real problem with interpretation of the Old Testament that I call a flatline reading of scripture, um, by which I mean viewing the Bible as a kind of a perfect manual um, in which we in the present uh, retrospectively engineer the evangelical gospel back across a flattened landscape and we do that backwards and then when we want to make it relevant to today we apply it forwards and inevitably um, when you hear sermons where people try to apply verses like this, it will become behaviorist and um, proof texts for the gospel or some kind of behaviorism. Now, Jeremiah 17.9 has a big history in this approach. It's, uh, it's notorious and certainly in the hands of a Calvinist uh, interpretation, it's, it's, it's a basic text for what uh, they called total depravity. Um, and in, in the world of uh, Calvinism, total depravity um, includes the human will. That's a very important point. In other words, we can't even want the good um, because if we were capable of wanting the good, um, that actually would uh, qualify as some kind of uh, virtue and we can't have any virtues. Now, um, the, the original uh, authorised version uh, translation of this text was more uh, dramatic, I think. It, it said, the human heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And certainly desperately wicked um, sounds alarming. It sounds a, a, a total condemnation of the value of the human heart. The NIV 
improves this somewhat and it, it translates it as not desperately wicked but as beyond cure. Now there's clearly a slightly different uh, range of connotation in their word de uh, beyond cure. It's a medicinal word versus a moral word. Um, the ESV, which Ian Proven has recommended to us, is the most accurate, however goes further and, and translates it as desperately sick. So it's not desperately wicked, it's desperately sick. So uh, it's retaining the idea of you know, an organic uh, medicinal range of connotations. But the NIV had made that um, deterministic, beyond cure, meaning it is impossible to, to cure. And the word beyond, I suspect, is, um, is, a, is an imposition onto the text. So I'm working with the ESV. Um, in the NIV study notes of the Bible that Anne uses, this retrospective interpret evangelical interpretation of a verse like this is quite explicit. Their side notes to the verse read like this. Sin is terminal. There is no cure. However, God has a solution. He offers to remove the terminally sinful heart and replace it with a new heart. That's what they say. So it's a complete um, uh, retrospective placement, re-engineering backwards of the normal four spiritual laws gospel onto Jeremiah 17 verse 9. Um, I want to definitely challenge that, but as I do it, I want to introduce a better way of reading Scripture because um, there are better ways, I think. Um, and, and these better ways come out of a cluster of um, humanistic studies. Um, I, I'm not trained in hermeneutics per se, but I am trained in literature, and that's one of the lenses I want to take. Um, I also, in my training and profession, uh, spent my career for over 30, probably now 40 years, looking at the process of human cognition and human thinking. So, and in particular, how humans think creatively. And I want to use some of those tools to show how we could think creatively about uh, this text. Uh, that might sound a little bit strange and a bit of a stretch, but um, it's not because really God has made us human beings to participate in his kingdom. And if we say that, um, as we often do in gospel conversations, that the greatest role of humanity is to continue the creation of God, we, we, are, not, um, we are not blank tablets that God is trying to write a perfect answer on. That's not the um, humanity that we see in the scriptures. The humanity we see in the scriptures is God wants partners and co-workers. And that means we have to be engaged. We have to think creatively and we have to think creatively about the past, but also about our present. So I'm going to offer uh, readings that will support that. And the particular um, professions I'll draw on is first literature, which will teach you to read the text and let the text speak for itself. Um, secondly, his, historical, um, that is doing the work of putting yourself back into the context 
the local context of a text. Thirdly, rhetorical, and rhetorical is an extension of literature, but the, the power of rhetoric is that it was an art of action. It's almost literature and action, and rhetoric views scripture as having, uh, or sorry, views any text through the lens of a discourse. It's a, it's a conversation, a conversation between an author and an audience, and a conversation that is not a theoretical conversation but one that is disposing us to a new way of being and action. And finally, and I probably won't, I might do this in the second talk, a metaphorical or Christological reading of the text, um, which, which was how Origen and the Patristics handled the text. It's uh, controversial and of course is on the nose in, with modern evangelicals who have a very propositional view of reading scripture, but we'll come to that later. Um, so uh, the, um, let's plunge straight in and let's, um, let's look at this text and say, well, how would we look at it differently if we use this kind of lens? And I'll go through a four-stage process. And the first stage is um, letting go. It's letting go of who we are now and trying to explore the context, get back in the context. Um, this requires, funnily enough, um, empathy. You've got to be empathic. It requires suspension of judgment. It, it requires actually doing exactly what the NIV uh, didn't do, which is let go of our modern paradigms and try as best we can to get back into the thought paradigms of this ancient world. Obviously, you need some resources to help you do that, but um, let's look at it. So if we get back into the shoes of Jeremiah, who was you know, the author of these words, his situation, his situation, what was his situation? Now that means really not just reading the book of Jeremiah, which uh, is a very, um, it's a rambling book. Um, but it's a book that's situated, and it was situated in the book of Kings and Chronicles, so definitely getting back into Kings and Chronicles. Um, his situation was the imminent destruction of Jerusalem. It was, he, was, he, was, he was a resident of Jerusalem. Um, Ezekiel, by contrast, was, who was about you know, a generation or so younger, was a resident of Babylon. So straight away that will give us a ability to um, imagine what it would be like. Uh, Jerusalem uh, ha had been um, inexorably pursued and threatened by its contest with Babylon and um, things were looking grim. Things were looking grim. The other part of the situation that's very important is understanding that the book of Jeremiah um, probably more than any of the other Old Testament prophets I think that I've read, is definitely situated in the middle of an intense debate. Um, he, had, he had antagonists and he, quite a lot of it is biographical and historical and you know, we can, we can, you know, he wore his heart on his sleeve, Jeremiah. I think it wouldn't be very hard to draw a pen portrait of him. That's his situation. Um, his antagonists or his his audience, the people he was speaking to, um, were also inhabitants of Jerusalem. 
they were inhabitants of Jerusalem and Jerusalem was um, governed by Zedekiah. Now Zedekiah was a puppet. He was a Babylonian puppet. He, he if you read the last, it's somewhere in the end of Kings, he, he was positioned there by Nebuchadnezzar after um, uh, Jehoiakim, I think it was, the last king was, was um, exported to Babylon and they put in Zedekiah as a puppet, not as a king, but really a puppet administrator. He almost immediately turned against Babylon. And he turned against Babylon pretty obviously, um, nothing to do with his attempts to um, honour God. Um, it was self-interest, pure and simple. Um, there's a lot about Zedekiah in Jeremiah, and he's a, you could really make a, if you were making a mini-series, you would have plenty of resources to draw the character. He's a chameleon figure. Um, he he's, seems to, to oscillate between um, um, erratic behaviours of um, rebellion against Babylon, and then uh, he did that. Why would he do that? He'd be an idiot if he did it on his own. Well, he was hoping for an alliance with Egypt, um, but clearly his interests were uh, accruing power and wealth. This, you just imagine, he's been put in a position um, he was not a king. He, he was not in the lineage of kings. He was put in this position. And he thinks, oh, this is too good to be true. I'm going to make something out of this. And he really plays, plays the field in trying to um, uh, create an empire for himself. But he doesn't just do that. He employs um, the religion of Judah as his... Um, uh, brand campaign as his advisors, you know, and it's essentially a God is on our side view of the world. Now, this is, this is actually important to get yourself into their shoes because Jeremiah's opponents were these prophets, and essentially the debate is between the prophets who were at face value, actually, as I've said in a past episode, um, they could position themselves as patriots. They could position themselves as the real um, descendants of Moses. You know, we're, we're actually, God's on our side, Jehovah is with us, Babylon are idolaters, etc., etc., etc. And Jeremiah, well, he's a traitor. He's a traitor. He's a pessimist. Um, whereas Jeremiah is saying, sorry, God is not on our side. He's actually on the, on the side of the Babylonians. Now, at face value, you can just put yourself in Jeremiah's position. That would be a pretty tough thing to, to, to say um, because it would look like you're actually talking against the uh, um, received religion of, uh, of Moses. So he said this destruction was God's judgment and... Um, he, he, he does talk about sin a lot, but he's, not, he's talking about specific sin. Jeremiah is saying that the problems with Judah and God's judgment is a judgment specifically from uh, the low point of Israel's history, which is the reign of Manasseh, who ironically was the um, uh, son of Hezekiah, who was a good king. And the dark nadir of Israel's history was Manasseh's time and for this they were being judged. They'd never recovered from that. There was something rotten in the state of Israel, to coin Shakespeare's phrase.
So um, within that broad picture, um, we, need to, we need to read a verse like chapter 17, verse 9 within that kind of a picture. And um, insofar as any picture of quote-unquote sin emerges, there's a few important points. So the first thing is that the sins being attacked when Jeremiah is attacking bad behaviour were 99% the sins of the ruling class. It was Zedekiah, his cronies, his allies. Um, and you know, chapter 21 is a good example of this. It says, to the house of the king of Judah, say, execute justice in the morning. Um, and then it goes on to talk about do good for the resident aliens and the widows. So it's, it's quite specific. It's not about, no, by no means is Jeremiah saying, all have sinned and short, fallen short of the glory of God. He is specifically targeting um, Zedekiah and his cronies, and the the sin that offends him is uh, um, either idolatry. Certainly, but the the kind of idolatry he's attacking is syncretism. It's not as simple as oh, they've gone and worshipped Moloch. Um, it's idolatry, but it's it's also equally as much on social injustice. So rather than something like totally reprobate, totally depraved, you know, he's not saying that at all. He is talking about a um, specific era um, of people who, in particular, were using their power um, to line their pockets and accrue wealth. I mean, really, think it's it's much more SBS World News, you know, dictators, Putin, um, uh, you know, the sad, sad state of the world where there is just a cluster of rulers who draw power for themselves and, and oppress their people. Um, so that's the that's a, a better picture of the situation that would be diving back in and putting ourselves in that situation. But uh, when uh, the second step is, is not to stay there, um, because yes, that's really good work, but whenever, uh, Israel was a social system, Israel was a kingdom, and whenever you're looking at any social system, you, you, to, to truly understand it, um, you've got to lift up a little bit and look at its purpose. And you do you do this in, in if you're looking at any organisation and trying to trying to analyse its situation. So sure, begin with its situation, but then say, well, hang on, what was the mission of this organisation? Because really, we'll start evaluating the situation against the mission, and the mission of Israel's purpose um, is absolutely critical because as Christians, we. Uh, should be viewing this mission as God's mission rather than Israel's mission. Um, you know, the missions come from the founders. Um, the founders now, who are the founders of Israel? We could certainly begin with Moses, go back to Moses and saying, what was God doing with Moses in ripping a people out of Egypt, out of idolatrous Egypt? He was ripping a people out to worship him and to know him and to explain him to the world. And putting it in modern terms, this was the only nation in the history of the world that had conceived of God 
in monotheistic terms. So really the mission of Israel was to be a lamp to the world of the nature of God. It was humanity's only chance of understanding who God was. The contrasting cosmologies were had had downgraded views of God, which we've talked about before, and I would highly recommend if you want to explore this to go onto the Gospel Conversations website and look at Ian Proven's Old Testament Reloaded section in the early talks there. Brilliant about that. So that seems to be the mission from Moses. You could go back to Abraham and say, well, actually, what's the mission from Abraham? And that Genesis 12, verse 1, where God called Abraham out of um, Ur of the Chaldees and began the project, began the project of blessing the world. In you will all nations of the earth be blessed. So he wanted Israel to be a blessing to the world. Um, you could take it back further to the beginning of the beginning in Genesis and look at the calling of humanity in Genesis 1.27 to rule and govern the earth. That God uh, created human beings as his Trinitarian agents on the earth. That's his big picture. And Israel was meant to be initiating that agency on the earth. So what, it, what, it, what Israel had done um, was they had flipped that and they thought their mission was themselves. And for Zedekiah, his mission was himself. His mission was his own ego. His mission was lining his own pockets. Uh, he had made God uh, the means to his end. Oh, God will bless us. He's on our side. Um, Jeremiah is saying, sorry, God, <laughs> God is not on your side. God's on God's side and you're a means to his end and you've failed. So, Insofar as there's a picture of sin, that's it. Um, and um, well, with that big picture in mind, which gives us, I think, a much better framework to look at Jeremiah 17, 19, we can go in now, and this will be a more of a literary lens. Let's look a little bit more closely at the verses. I mean, we've looked at the you know, subtle changes of translation, but what about the verses? Um, certainly, Jeremiah 17 opens with uh, an invective against sin. We've talked about that. Um, but then uh, verses 5 to 8 are the immediate context. And verses 5 to 8 are, verse 5 says, Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength. Little section on that. Then verse 7, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is in the Lord. He is like a tree planted by the water, very much like Psalm 1. So these verses are clearly recalling Deuteronomy, where God is putting a choice before his people, before all people, of walking your life either as a, like a tree, drawing on the knowledge of God, or uh, somebody who is totally self-interested and is going to use their own resources to get what they want. Now, if you read uh, those two verses, because verse 9 comes immediately after them, through the lens of um, original sin, you'd say, oh, well, that means every human being is, is like the cursed man and there's no human being who trusts in the Lord. 
Well, I don't think that's the case at all. I mean, Jeremiah, I'm sure, considered he trusted in the Lord. There's no way in this context that Jeremiah is advocating all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. What is he saying? So we go into the verse, and the verse um, is uh, these two verses, these couplets of, wow, they're just different, two, two different classes of people on the planet. It leads to a question. The question's in the verse. It doesn't lead to the conclusion that all have sinned and that everyone's in the bad camp. It leads to a question, who can measure the heart? Which is what, exactly what verse 9 ends with. The point of him saying the human heart is deceitful and desperately sick is who can understand it? Now, um, so the issue being presented by the text is inscrutability, the impenetrability of the heart not its total sinfulness. It's, 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 uh, um, deceitful doesn't mean that I'm an active deceiver who's you know, breaking my word with people and telling lies. It means the heart itself, the human heart is so complex, it defies anyone to understand. It's beyond understanding as to you know, whether people are trusting God or not trusting God. Now, we know that Jeremiah was right in the middle of this because he was in the middle of people who were certainly claiming to trust God, but were not trusting God. And um, it, 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 it is very depressing to deal with human beings, even to deal with ourselves, because there, there are these layers of self-deception. Who can, who can know our own heart? Um, so hence the quote-unquote sickness of a heart is more to do with the layers of defensiveness, self-justification, evasion, etc. that we all have. Not to say we're desperately wicked, but we're impossible to know. That's really, really the point. Um, and, but importantly, he doesn't finish with a question. He answers the question and he answers it in verse 10. And the answer in verse 10 is, the Lord knows. The Lord knows. That's his point. The point of verse 9 is verse 10. I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind. Why? Why do I do this? So that in itself is, is the first step of having a foundation. There is one who knows the heart. Humanity and our passage through the world is not anarchy. We're not on shifting sands. There's a foundation. The Lord measures the heart. He understands the heart. The layers don't deceive him. But why, why does he do this? Why does he do this? For a purpose, to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. God is actually interested in rewards. So this is a long way from all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. It looks like God is actually assessing and judging, just as he is in this context in Jerusalem. He's assessing Zedekiah, he's judging him. But he's definitely on the side of Jeremiah and, and others. Um, and, and, and God is doing it to give rewards. Now, the kind of rewards he's interested in um, are then immediately explained in verse 11, this very powerful image. Like the partridge that gathers a brood that she did not hatch is he who gets riches but not by justice. So the social justice action of a ruling class who are like a robber, a bird robber, that... I presume the partridge is a bird that actually steals uh, the young from other nests. This is like Zedekiah and his mates. So it's a very specific target in mind here. Um, but importantly, this 
these bad deeds that Jeremiah is focusing on in verse 11, it doesn't stop there. It actually returns to hope in verse 12. And it says, A glorious throne set on high from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary. That whilst you've got bad deeds, he still recalls the mission, really, which is a glorious throne. That immediately evokes what I ended with in Genesis. God is actually on the throne. And the point of uh, Jeremiah, the point of the scripture is God, God's throne will be established on the earth somehow. And that's, that's what he's wanting to do. Um, and the chapter goes on and expands a vision of the return of King David. Um, so this verse, uh, far from being a, a paraphrase or a prediction of all of sinned and fall short of the glory of God, is much more a verse that uh, says something along the lines of you're desiring that all mankind put their trust in you. However, the heart is impossibly scrutable, inscrutable, impossibly difficult to know. Who can know it? God knows it and you will be the judge and you are being the judge by bringing Babylon. Um, I think that's a far, far truer reading of Jeremiah 17, verse 9, the inscrutability of the human heart. So I'll, I'll stop there because I do want to just do uh, one final pass through this, which is, well, what if you read this through the Christological or analogical reading um, of Origin and others? Now, what I've been itching to talk about how Origin and the Patristics used a analogical approach to the Bible. Um, it's been hugely criticised by the Protestant propositional reading of Scripture, um, which really tends to, if anything, takes just the historical reading and nothing else, and doesn't even often doesn't do a good job of that. But let's leave that for another time and uh, look forward to it then. God bless you.